Good morning. This is the fourth sermon in a series we've been going through called Saved For. What are the purposes and the results of our salvation? What does God have in mind when He saves us? Now, before we begin, it's good to remind ourselves once again not to fall into the trap of believing that anything we do leads to our salvation. No, the point of this series is that salvation leads to all those good ends, all those good results. Salvation leads to our good works. Ephesians 2.10, we're created in Christ Jesus. That is, we've been redeemed for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. But, if you're like me, when you hear the phrase good works, it makes you think of charity efforts, makes me think of stuff we do on our own time. Volunteer work, soup kitchens, food pantries, hurricane relief, the extracurricular stuff, so to speak. But does this apply to our occupations? Forget good works. What about work? Are our jobs part of what God has prepared us to walk in? If not, that's an awfully huge chunk of our lives, right? To be left with no purpose, no design from God. What's true is that God has quite a lot to say about work. Our sermon text is short. There's also a second verse there in the bulletin. Let's read both. Titus 3:14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In Colossians 3 verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. We need your wisdom. And we ask for it right now as we look at the prospect of work and what you have designed for us as redeemed people. We pray for our time that our hearts would be open, that your spirit would Allow us to see the world the way you see the world, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about my mom. If there's one person you can depend on to give of herself, it's Kate Heising. You say no one's volunteered to make the coffee before church, Kate will be there. Every Sunday, for decades if you let her. Now, as much as I love my mom and I admire her work ethic, she's responsible for two of the jobs in my life that I've more or less despised. When I was 14 years old, I got my work papers. Some of you here have just gotten those. I also got a planter's wart on my foot. And they are awful. If you have never had one, when they're in just the right spot, it's the worst pain you can imagine. They hurt way more than I should. Now, if, if I got one now, I would know to just buy some Dr. Schultz. But back then, uh, we went to the podiatrist for treatment week after week. And basically the treatment was kill some skin with acid, cut it off, kill some more skin, cut it off, on and on and on. And that's as gross as I'm going to get. But during the course of these skin-killing sessions... <laughs> 
It must have come up in conversation that because of my new work papers, I would be looking for my first job. Now, I know that my mom was the primary facilitator of this conversation with the doctor because I was not as talkative back then as I am now. So how's this for my mom's networking and selling skills? She got me my first job at the foot doctor's office. <laughs> so I had two duties. Number one, put away patient records in alphabetical order, which actually prepared me for what I do here, you know, filing the music away every week. I don't know, it, you know. But the second duty was to clean up toenails and whatever the heck else had happened in the exam room each visit to get ready for the next patient. I have germophobic tendencies. <laughs> So picture me trying to pick up medical napkins and paper towels without actually touching anything. It's not, not the best. So I only worked maybe five to seven hours a week there. And they probably only had me come in for about two months or something before they didn't need me anymore, mysteriously. But that time seemed like an eternity each day. You, you can't imagine counting down uh, those 15-minute chunks or whatever I did to make it more manageable. I definitely didn't have any perspective on meeting anyone's urgent need or doing that job as I would unto the Lord. And you probably have a similar experience with a job or a chore that you've hated. I think you'll agree that we often don't see any larger purpose in the work that we do. Hopefully what you'll see this morning is that if you're a follower of Christ, you've been saved so that you can please God in your work. We're going to chew on this in three parts. First, we're going to rediscover the blessing of work. Then we'll examine the curse on work. And lastly, we will think about the redemption of work. So the blessing of work, the curse on work, and the redemption of work. First, the blessing of work. In the beginning, work was a gift. Work was a gift from a happy God who delighted to give it to us. Sally read earlier from the book of Genesis, God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God placed Adam in a garden to work it and keep it. We as human beings were created to reflect the image of God in work. Because God works, we work. We reflect Him in cultivating the earth, in building civilization and helpful relationships, in specializing our skills to serve one another and bring glory to God as we display His creativity through our creativity. We are unique in the physical creation in this respect. No animal has been charged with this. Animals work, but they, they do it out of instinct. They don't, they don't think about their larger purpose. We're made in the image of God, and we take after Him in being able to work with purpose and to be fruitful. Work's one of our primary purposes. I want to clarify, we're not just talking about income-earning activity, not just our jobs. We're talking about it all. It's a broad category. You don't have to leave your home. Household chores, 
making a home, raising children, managing a household, that's work and it's often very hard work. It's noble work and it's economically robust and vital work. It all, all this work reflects God's work as our Father, as one who is sovereign over creation. We reflect His sovereignty in our little spheres. We're also talking about schoolwork. If you're in the middle of your education right now, this is for you too. There's a larger purpose if you will open your eyes to it. You're learning what others have already learned before you, what others have already discovered, so you can benefit from it, and then you can build on it yourself with a view toward the good of other people and the glory of God. So all of our work is what we're discussing this morning. See, God gave humanity dominion over the earth to rule it, to exercise our little shred of sovereignty over whatever he's given us to manage. A mutual fund, a house, the laundry, our car, our bicycle, our bodies. Imagine what the world would be like if everybody had that kind of perspective every day. If we were learning and serving one another with our skills and talents and property and creativity out of gratefulness to God and genuine concern for one another. Imagine what that world would be like. The steady theme of this sermon series, Saved For, is that through Jesus, God is remaking us and restoring us to our original purpose. Why do we need that? Because the world is not how it ought to be. Work is not how it ought to be, and we are not who we ought to be. Well, what happened? The curse happened. The curse on work. If we, if we think of work as a curse, it's because right now there actually is a literal curse on work. And in fact, all of creation is under a curse now because sin entered the world. If you read on in the book of Genesis, you see that in the garden, mankind bought the lie that God was holding out on us. He was withholding something good, and that wasn't true at all, but we believed it. They disobeyed. And as a result, creation is under a curse. It's not as it used to be. The curse on work is that work is now more toilsome. It's less rewarding. Guess what, Adam? The ground is not going to cooperate anymore. It's going to give you thorns and weeds to worry about now. Our, our work is marred. And the curse also affects us. We are sinful people. Our attitude toward others is, what's in it for me? We're more prone to take than to give. Children learned the word mine very early in life. And adults just make it sound more sophisticated. <laughs> we tend to consider our own benefit and be unfruitful. But look at our passage from Paul's letter to Titus. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Well, Paul knows that the people need to learn these things because that is not what comes naturally to us. We don't devote ourselves to good works. We don't help cases of urgent need left to our own devices. And, and we are often unfruitful. We offer selfish bargains. We multiply the price of cheap medication because we know we're the only supplier. So you've got to come to me. And this selfishness is unfruitful as is sheer laziness. 
And even when we do work, we work for the wrong reasons a lot of the time. We don't work with a Godward focus. We care more about what others think than what God thinks. We fear other people. Look at Paul's words in Colossians now, that other verse. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How easy is it to care only about pleasing your boss, your spouse, your teacher? Or we worry about what our friends and our coworkers think of us. We fail to call someone out on their dishonesty even though it's hurting the team in general. The curse doesn't affect just our conduct. There are whole philosophies about work itself that we've absorbed from parents or from TV or even from other Christians, maybe even preachers. So let's examine some of the bad ideas out there about work. We've already mentioned laziness, being unfruitful, finding work just distasteful. At the beginning of the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, there's this folk song, old folk song. And the last verse is on the front of your bulletin. I was debating if I should sing it. I'll sing it. He says, I'm going to a land that's far away where they hung the jerk that invented work in the big rock candy mountains. They hung the jerk that invented work. That always cracked me up, but at times we've all wondered if it would just be better to relax all the time. So we've talked about selfishness a little, but to that we can also add greed. Working to amass wealth for its own sake, to spend it only on ourselves. Paul says in his first letter to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That pang, that love of money that can take over your life, whether you have a lot or you don't. Just because you're in a lower tax bracket doesn't mean your heart is right toward money and toward work. Another fruitless view of work is working to make a name for yourself. This is on display also in the book of Genesis, in the Bible. At the Tower of Babel, humanity comes together. They want to build a tower to the heavens and make a name for themselves. They want to show their own greatness and proclaim they can accomplish anything by their own hand. Well, God put a stop to that. Are you building a godless empire for yourself? A monument to your own greatness? There are also religious distortions of work. Harmful ways of thinking. Besides the error of believing that we could earn our way to God by living a good life, aside from that, there is an idea in many Christian circles that only ministry work really counts. Ministry jobs are more important than others. There's a hierarchy, see, of, of, of good, really good work and not so good work. And certainly that idea is not exclusive to Christians, right? We rank people's jobs. We define ourselves according to what we do. But the mistaken idea that God is more pleased with people in ministry is, is prevalent, and it's easy to adopt if you're not careful. You see, some Christians think of heaven as this place where they're going to exist, just kind of floating around and singing all the time. So they think of the physical world as this evil, distasteful waiting room until that time. And all that matters is getting as many people onto the lifeboat as we can before, we, before they die or the world ends, so that the work that really matters 
is done by pastors and missionaries. That's what really counts. This mistaken idea. I grew up going to a camp where the week was scheduled like, we're going to play games and have fun, we're going to get you saved on Sunday night, then we'll go swimming and stuff, and then on Wednesday we're going to get you committed to being a missionary or a pastor at the campfire service. And what was implied, and what I'm sure tons of kids picked up, is the idea that if you really love God, you wouldn't settle for anything other than ministry work. Other jobs were just a necessary evil. And that's a lie. There's a little couplet on the front of your bulletin from a poem. And it was written by a missionary named C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I heard that slipped into sermons growing up with a very narrow, twisted view of what could be done for Christ. The good news for us this morning is that anything worth doing can be done for Christ. And that is, it can be done with a view toward pleasing God, with conduct that is honoring to God, that's loving. In Christ, we have great freedom with regard to work. So I hope this is going to encourage you this morning. Let's ponder the redemption of work. We've seen God's original blessing of work his design that we would reflect him in cultivating the earth and relationships and civilization. And we've seen how sin distorts all of creation, even our work. Work is toilsome. Our selfish nature results in laziness and greed and a broken society. But Jesus came to redeem and restore. He's the perfect image of God and he fulfills God's design for how we are to live. Jesus was a tradesman, a carpenter, without sin and all his business dealings. Imagine that. We don't talk about Jesus and business dealings. But it's easy for, to forget. He learned carpentry from his father, Joseph. He took up a trade. He wasn't just lazing about for three decades before he started his ministry of teaching and preaching. He works. And then he becomes a teacher traveling from town to town on his way ultimately to Jerusalem, where he's betrayed and gives his life, bearing God's wrath toward sin as our substitute. See, the redemption of work is only possible because of Jesus' work of redemption first, his life and his death in our place. Those who place their faith in Christ, his perfect obedience and his sacrifice and his resurrection, have received a new nature, a nature that responds to God in thankfulness for his blessings and love to God and for others. We've been saved not, not so we can just escape from this doomed world to a misty ghost world in the sky. If that were the case, the devil would win in completely corrupting this physical creation. No. Ultimately, God will bring a new heaven and a new earth. We will exist physically for all eternity. How does this affect us now? Well, if we have this renewed nature that is possible because of Christ, that turns our orientation from self-centered and inward to outward in love, 
we, we have a new love for others that looks for ways to bless them and ways to serve them, sometimes without anything in return. If you're a child of God, your whole attitude toward the world is different. Your first question is no longer, what can I get from others? It's what can I give to others? As followers of Christ, we can meet the urgent needs around us. We can be fruitful. We can do our work to please God rather than merely satisfy the demands of customers or bosses or co-workers or the demands of our kids. We can have a higher purpose. Our work isn't a necessary evil. It's God's design for our lives. There is meaning in it. God calls us to all kinds of work and vocations. And he's pleased when we fulfill his call in our lives. That goes for a woman working the assembly line in a car factory as much as it goes for the missionary woman we met in Belize back in August who's been there for over 30 years. If that's God's calling, he's pleased with you when you fulfill it. The gospel of Christ sets us free to view all work as important. It also sets us free from the search for that elusive, perfect job. The one job that's a perfect expression of who you are. You know, I've been on that search. It comes from a misguided hierarchy of work. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to look for better situations. That's good. To get raises and promotions, switch fields if necessary, if there's a better way you could be serving. You, you should seek jobs that fit with God, how God's designed you. But don't let it keep you from working now. In your life, there may be extended times when you take the job that's available rather than the job that you feel is most suitable. Is your view of work biblical enough and God-honoring enough to work on the assembly line? Is your view of work biblical enough to take a job you might not feel like doing every day? You know, Mark preached last week on a cruciform life. Jesus' words that anyone who follows him must deny themselves and take up their cross every day. Part of why I'm preaching this sermon is because I read a book this summer called Work, The Meaning of Your Life, which affected me profoundly. Listen to what Lester DeCoster says about the cruciform life as it pertains to work. He says, yes, the worker, each of us, knows what self-denial is. That's commonly a part of working. Isn't this exactly what the Lord requires of those who would be his followers? Self-denial for self-giving. To others. That's what we do through our jobs. Take up your cross, the Lord adds. Wounded workers know by experience what he means. They daily go back to shouldering the cross of unwilling spirits, of complaining muscles, of bone-weary bodies, of aching inner selves, of maimed expectations, of utter frustration, to do the jobs required of them. End quote. Work can be part of that self-denial every day, to follow Christ. It's a huge chunk of our lives for it to have no design and no purpose. The good news is we don't do it in our own strength. We don't muster up all the willpower we can. We have God as our source of love, source of joy. Peter in his first letter. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You're not on your own. You work in the strength that God gives you. There is pain in any kind of work at some time. But there's meaning and dignity and design in any kind of work. The Christian seeks to improve the lives of others, bringing health, uh, bringing healing and hope, whether as a nurse or a garbage collector, a veterinarian. No matter what your work, whether it's your living or your volunteer work or your chores on your own time, here are some questions to ask yourself. Are you a life giver or a life taker? In other words, do you walk out of the door in the morning with gratefulness for all your blessings and a a desire to bless the world from what God has given to you? Or are you a jealous miser looking to use others for your benefit alone? Are you like Christ in your loving conduct toward others while you work? See, what we do here in this life will be judged based on whether it honored God. That's true. Our, our conduct matters. The motivation of our hearts matters. And the work that we do matters. You can't sell sex and be glorifying to God. You can't, um, you can't be involved in organized crime and bring glory to God. It's just not going to happen. So the work we do matters. The intent of our heart matters. Is your motivation, this is the most important question, is your motivation to please God in your work? Perhaps as you think of those questions, you realize that your whole life does revolve around you. You recognize that your heart doesn't show God the gratefulness He deserves for blessing you with life and purpose. But you've heard all this and suddenly you see beauty in that story of redemption. That Christ came and Christ was our example and he lived in our place and he died in our place that he alone is able to restore us to our true purpose. Maybe you see beauty in that here for the first time this morning. And if that is true of you, I urge you, reject that selfishness. Reject the sinful desire to live for yourself alone. Place your faith in him. In a few moments, as others are coming up for the Lord's Supper, stay seated and ponder Jesus' sacrifice. After the service, you can talk to an elder that will be waiting here at the, at the front, or you can talk to me if you want. You know, it's been a long time since that podiatrist's office. If I could give my younger self some perspective, I would tell him to consider Jesus, who humbled himself to wash his disciples' feet. My work there, whether I recognized it or not, and despite whatever my motivation was at the time, it allowed the podiatrist to help others get relief and go about their own work. If he or the receptionist had been cleaning up after these visits, the office wouldn't be able to serve as many people. During that time, that was God's purpose for me in the world. I didn't have that larger perspective. We need all types of work. I'd point out to myself that Jesus' work was sacrificial. He gave of himself. You know, giving his life wasn't enjoyable in the moment. Yet we're told that he endured for the joy set before him. He knew that he'd be glorified at the end. He knew that he would redeem a people. 
a church, a bride for himself. And he knew that his father would be pleased with his work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work that you do in our lives and the purpose that you've given us. And we thank you for your son who gave himself that we might be restored to our original purpose, that we can now find redemption in all of life, including the bulk of our lives, making a living. We ask for strength. We ask for help that our hearts would grow in love toward others out of gratefulness to you. And we pray that you would be with us all the days of the week, that we would seek to honor you every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.